The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. In order to thrive in today's competitive business market, you need to constantly adapt to change. In other words, reinvent yourself and your company. Welcome to Business Reinvention with host Nancy Lynn. This hour will have you listening to and thinking like the successful business leaders of today. Now, here is your host, Nancy Lynn. Hello, and welcome back to Business Reinvention. This is Nancy Lynn. We bring you thought-provoking ideas from a wide range of industries so that you can connect the dots and stay innovative and competitive. And I want to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to listen to this program. I know how crazy things can get um, during the week. In the new book, Present Shock, Douglas Rushkoff described our fast-moving lives um, this way, and I quote, um, If the end of the 20th century can be characterized by futurism, the 21st century can be defined by presentism. People spend the 20th century obsessed with the future, and we created technologies that help connect us faster. Well, the future has arrived, and we live in a continuous, quote-unquote, now, enabled by Twitter, email, and the so-called real-time technological shift. And yet, this quote-unquote, now, is an elusive goal that we can never quite reach. And the dissonance between our digital selves and our analog bodies has thrown us into a state of anxiety, end quote. Well, I don't think I could have said it any better. Um, that pretty much sums up our fast-forward lives today. But is there really no way out of this? Would it be possible for us to slow down? But can slowness actually be good for a business um, or our career? And as time and slowness become scarce, does that then make them a luxury and in turn help create other business opportunities? Well, Carl Honoré has spent the last decade researching the answers to some of these questions, and he has shared his findings in his books In Praise of Slowness, Under Pressure, and most recently, The Slow Fix. And he is here with us today to talk about his books, The Slow Movement, and its impact on business and the way of our life. Hi, Carl. Welcome to the show. Hi. Great to be with you. <laughs> so great to have you here. Um, you have written three books, like I said, about the movement. Um, what is so important about slowing down? Well, it seems to me that we've wound ourselves up into such a hysterical state that we've turned every moment of the day into a race against the clock. So even when we're away from the workplace, every moment has become a dash to the finish line. And I'm not anti-speed. I, I, I love going fast. I'm, I'm not a fundamentalist of slowness. Uh, the problem is that we have got stuck in fast forward. We're stuck in roadrunner mode. And we're going so fast now that all of this rushing, busyness, distraction, stimulation, connectedness is is starting to backfire on us in lots of different ways. It's taking a toll on 
every aspect of our lives, from our diet and health to our relationships and communities and to our work, the quality of our work, our companies, our organizations, and to the environment and society as a whole. So I think we've reached the stage of diminishing returns with this constant upward curve of acceleration, and the time has come to relearn the lost art of slowing down. Mm. And I think there's always this assumption or association, um, you know, I guess, with fast and efficiency. Yes. Um, are, are there studies that actually prove that's the case, or do they show it otherwise? Well, I, th- I think that this is a, a, a deep cultural problem that we have at the moment, is that we associate speed with good, speed with efficiency, speed with, with productivity. And, of course, speed is one component, one variable in the equation. It's not the only metric. The trouble is that it's become the sole benchmark for doing things well. So the automatic knee-jerk assumption of our culture, whether in the workplace or in our relationships or social media or sports or dieting or whatever we're doing, the knee-jerk assumption is always that faster is better. And I think Mm -hmm. that's really what I've been trying to tackle over the last few years with my books and what everyone who's part of this slow culture quake is taking by the scruff of the neck and saying, hang on a minute, this is absurd. You know, yes, it makes sense to go fast, but it's not all about how fast you do things. I mean, this, this slow philosophy that people talk about is not about doing everything at a snail's pace. That would be preposterous. It's about doing everything at the right speed. You know, there are times to be fast, there are times to be slow, and then all those different speeds in between. Musicians have a term they use. Uh, they talk about the tempo giusto, the idea that every piece of music has a natural rhythm or natural tempo to it, and if if you can apply that principle to everything you do, if you when you're you know writing a report at work or driving or eating or reading bedtime stories to your children, if you try and get as close to the right tempo for that moment, forgetting trying to do whatever it is as fast as possible, but trying to do it as well as possible, then then that's a change of chip in your head, and it will revolutionize everything you do. It's it's quite a simple idea, really, this idea of doing things at the right speed, but it's profoundly. And for a lot of people, frighteningly countercultural, because we've swallowed this idea that faster is always better. And the flip side of that equation is that we've created a very deep taboo in our culture against the very idea of slowing down. Slow has become a dirty word. It's a four-letter word in our culture. It's a, a byword for lazy, torpid, boring, unproductive, unmodern, all the things that nobody wants to be. You know, it's, it's even a byword for stupid. You look it up in the dictionary, slow, mm. stupid. And, and I think that makes it very difficult for us because even when we can feel in our bones that it would be good for us to put on the brakes, even just a little bit, we, we're afraid to do it. We're ashamed. We're scared. We're, we're, we're worried about being vilified or really ridiculed by people around us. So we, what do we do? We put our head down and we just keep on going. You know, we just stay, stay on the same path in turbo mode. Huh. I, I think that's really well said, and that's definitely a very strong common perception um, that fast is better, um, even though research might have shown that multitasking doesn't really work. That's and, a perfect example. Perfect yeah. example. I mean, the, the myth of multitasking is such – I mean, that is a wonderful lens through which we can look at the absurdity of our theology of speed, is the idea that doing more and more, faster and faster, cramming more and more into every minute is somehow the best option, and it's patently not. I mean, this is science is very clear on this, that the human brain cannot multitask. I mean, you cannot write a letter to the IRS and at the same time, uh, you know, write a report to your, uh, you know, for your boss. It just simply, you simply <laughs> cannot do those two things at once. But we try to do two things, three things at once, and, and what happens is in those moments when we think we're multitasking, there's an, it gives us an illusion of adrenaline rush of excitement of feeling that we're doing lots of things lots of balls in the air we feel like we're we're in the game we're on our we're playing our a game but actually 
the opposite is true because what the brain is doing in that moment is it's toggling back and forth between different tasks. So 30 seconds on one task, stop. 15 seconds on another, stop. Five seconds on a third. You know, and that turns out to be just as inefficient as it sounds. So there is pretty clear research showing that when people do get stuck in that multitasking carousel, that it takes them longer to do those tasks than if they just stopped and did one thing at a time, fully focused, concentrating completely on the act, and then stopping and moving on to the next task instead of trying to juggle, which seems to be the way that people feel they have to do things now. Yeah, and especially now, you know, here in Silicon Valley, I often see people texting while, you know, having dinner with friends or mm. families and sending work email at 10 o'clock at night. And it's just really hard for people here to live in the present. And they seem to be on the go all the time in their minds elsewhere. And sometimes I wonder if slow movement is moving too slowly and if it has <laughs> an impact at all besides the slow food movement. Um, are these signs that we are slowing down? I mean, am I missing oh, something here? Yeah, no, and, and it's, in fact, it's the fastest people around, those Silicon Valley people who are starting to embrace this idea. I mean, I think that if I'd written my book, say, 20 years ago, they would have been of interest to, uh, you know, people in aromatherapy cooperatives and some yoga schools and meditation retreats, uh, but it wouldn't have struck a chord in the mainstream. But, but nowadays, it's, it's people who are on the front line in the fastest sectors of the economy who are saying, things are too fast. You know, this is backfiring on me. I'm not thinking clearly. I'm making more mistakes. I'm exhausted. I'm skimming through my life instead of actually living it. And so it is that Silicon Valley demographic where you're starting to see people slowly but surely carving out moments where they can reconnect with their inner tortoise, you know, shift into a lower gear. Uh, Just one example is, uh, you know, big companies like Google or um, Microsoft have, are, are starting to create or have created mindfulness programs where they set aside quiet rooms on the campus or in the headquarters of the head office where people can go and do meditation or uh, you know, get yoga or massage and just have that gear change, you know, to find that slower gear. So these things are beginning to happen. The, the problem, of course, is that we're all so impatient now that we even want to slow down fast, right? So, <laughs> so people, people will often say, I'm not making this up. They'll say to me, oh, you know, I read your book and I thought that was wonderful. I so need that or I heard you speak or something. And, and what they do, they say, well, you know, I signed up for a meditation class and I ran across the street to do some yoga and then I charged off home to do some, you know, to have a herbal tea. And you just think, you're slightly missing the point here, right? <laughs> you know, you have to slow down slowly. And I, I do think that we're at the beginning of a cultural revolution here. That, it, In my view, if you want to just step back for a moment and look at the big picture, it seems to me that we've been on an upward curve of acceleration where every component of our society and culture has got faster and faster for at That's least right. 150 years. And for most of that time, I would argue that that speeding up was probably doing more good than bad. But in the last few years, the pendulum has swung to the other extreme. And I, I would say now that this obsession with doing things faster and faster is in many cases doing more harm than good. And it's, it, it, we've reached that point now that people are starting to look for change. It, it won't happen this week. It, you know, we won't create a full slow world next month or in five, you know, it's, we're talking about turning around a super tanker, but I do think that we, we are at the beginning of, a, of an awakening and a, and a realization that faster isn't always better, you know, and this is not a nostalgic, Luddite, anti-modern, let's go back and live, you know, pre-industrial era, you know, I, I'm not that kind of person, I have an iPhone and a Mac, I love all that stuff, right, I love the fast side of things, but yeah, you, get a lot, so- you get a lot more out of the fast if you also have some slow. 
Yeah. So, you know, I think a lot of people like that idea, but they find it hard to imagine what it would look like, right? Um, and there are a lot of skeptics who think that slowing down is only possible in certain industries. And it's, it's interesting you actually mentioned that some tech companies in Silicon Valley are trying to slow down because th- there is a perception that for very cutthroat industries, it's almost unthinkable, right? So can you give us a couple examples, like, you know, that may be different from this argument that we're hearing a lot. Sure. Is it really just in Silicon Valley, you know, like, because people think, you know, Californians do crazy things anyway. Is that an exception or are you seeing elsewhere as well? Well, no, you see it. You see it everywhere. Uh, And so you you, you put your finger on uh, the technology. I mean, that's, I think any time a new technology comes around, it takes us some time to work out the best uses for it, you know, to, to, to forge the cultural norms and the social etiquette and the rules around it to get the most out of it. And this, this information technology revolution that's kind of crept up on us and just exploded, we're just, still, we're just starting now to work out how to get the balance right. But you're already seeing it in, in companies, uh, whether it's, you know, the Boston Consulting Group of management um, consultant firm, which revamped its, its whole culture around technology. You know, they, they found that their staff, you know, highly ambitious hard-charging, type-A personalities were always on, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, firing off of those emails, checking their inbox, you know, sending messages, and, and they were burning out. You know, they were making mistakes. They couldn't focus. So they said, let's just step back a minute and say they, they maybe didn't use the language of the slow revolution, but effectively they, they orchestrated a slow culture quake in the company. They said, okay, we know that these fast gadgets are good, but not all the time. So they created a culture where it was possible certain hours of the week for everybody to switch off, to be disconnected, to get away from their inbox, not to have to answer messages, and to be able to shift gears. Uh, and, and that's a big, thriving international firm that's, that's brought that on board. You see it in other companies as well. Uh, Deloitte and Touche, uh, Intel have played around with you know, email-free mornings or you know, just trying to find a better balance, a better equilibrium so that people can use the gadgets to be fast when it makes sense to be, and then unhook and get into that slower groove uh, not only to recharge their batteries, but also to be able to think, uh, you know, deeper, more in, in a more nuanced manner, more creatively, because they're not constantly distracted. And, and that message is coming increasingly from the high-tech companies. I mean, Hewlett Packard put out some research recently warning that the constant barrage of electronic interruptions, phone, fax, pager, Twitter, Facebook, you know, text, whatever, all of that causes our IQ to fall 10 points. And if you know anything about IQ, wow. you know 10 points is, it, is double the effect of marijuana. Right? And wow, you, that's... And you get to that stage. So we think, we have this idea that being always on is going to turn us into an uber-productive master of the universe. What it does is it turns you into Cheech and Chong. <laughs> well, very refreshing idea right here for, for sure. Well, let's first take a two-minute break, and you're listening to Business We Mentioned with Nancy Lin. For more up-to-date insights on business innovation, follow me on Twitter at Business We Mentioned. We'll continue with this discussion after these messages. Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business. 
In today's marketplace, your ability to open up the way you think and adapt to change allows your business to stay ahead of curve and perform at a higher level. At Change Agent SF, we can provide you with the tools and coaching to become an effective leader to grow your business. Contact us today at 415-322-9073 or email Nancy Lynn at info at changeagentsf.com for more information. Transform your leadership and business with Change Agent SF. How can we Americans realize our dreams to earn a living? How can you pursue your dream and make money as an owner or an employee? Learn how at The American Business Person, the online weekly radio talk show hosted by Rich Killian. Today's business leaders share how to succeed and what fails. If you own a new or established business or ever hope to, you must tune in. Join us every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Central, and noon Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Or listen on demand to our archived shows. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Business Reinvention with Nancy Lynn. To join in on this week's discussion, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now, back to Business Reinvention. Well, Carl, thanks for the great examples about how some businesses are um, trying to slow their staff down. Um, in your book, you also mentioned some cities in Italy that have decided to slow uh, or started to um, become slow cities, I should say. And it's really interesting for me to know that not only organizations can implement philosophy of slow movement, but you could actually scale it up and have the entire city running on the same concept. Was that a challenge for them to actually make it work? I think it was, and I think they're, they're, they're still struggling because it's, you know, you're setting yourself up as an oasis of slow in a world of fast. So it's, it's, it, it can be tricky, but it, it, it does often signal when a city becomes a slow city, an official slow city, it can be the beginning of the tectonic plates shifting for people who live in that town. And, and you mentioned that it started in Italy, but actually that whole slow cities movement has swept right across Europe, and there are now slow cities in North America as well, and Australia, over a hundred of them. And, and they'll, you know, they'll do a concrete changes such as you know, rethinking and reshaping the urban landscape in ways that encourage people to put on the brakes so they might close roads to traffic and set them aside for pedestrians and cyclists or have just public, more public benches or more green space. But in some ways, I think that perhaps the key benefit of becoming an official slow city is that it's like a philosophical declaration. It's almost as though a whole town is coming together and saying, we understand that slow is not bad. You know, the slowness has a role to play in the 21st century. And for a lot of people, I've been to many of these towns, uh, a lot of people find that it's almost that philosophical planting of a flag that's the most powerful change, that it gives people permission to slow down. And that, that kind of cu- comes back to what I was talking about earlier, that this powerful taboo in our culture against the very idea of decelerating, of, of anything that smacks of slowness. People get trapped in fast forward and, and they want to slow down, but they feel too ashamed to do it. And something like having a company 
coming together and saying, okay, you know what? We understand that slow is good here. Uh, it's all right to slow down. It will actually be better for all of us in the longer run, and it'll be better for the bottom line if we learn how to change gears. And the same thing happens at a, the level of a city. It, it liberates people. It frees them up. It gives them a license to start looking for that tempo justo, looking for the right pace, the right rhythm in order to live better, play better, work better. And it's, mm. you know, it, it's a, it, it, the, the slow city movement itself is confined to cities up to 50,000 inhabitants. So it's, these are tend to be slower places anyway. It's not like New York or Tokyo or London. Uh, but you certainly see some of the same moves, some of the same initiatives gaining ground in the big metropolises around the world. And you think of that uh, green line. It's not, they call it New York where they took that old railway and turned it into a park that you can walk through town in. Or the, the proliferation of public bicycle networks, you know, where you can rent bikes uh, and drive around. That's really changed the way the streets feel in London and England where I live. Uh, so even big, big cities can embrace some of this slow thinking, some of these slow changes, and begin to make you know, granular shifts that do begin to shift and change people's behavior. So it's really about mindset change, like you said. And I think what someone once said, um, we can't create more time, but we can create more energy that makes us more productive. So in a way, it's saying that, you know, slowing down actually helps create more energy and help us become more efficient, um, which is a different way of achieving the goals when you try to speed up. Exactly. I think that slow is about living each moment fully and getting the most out of each moment. So that will be the most in terms of pleasure, of communication, of intellectual engagement, and also productivity, because those things all go hand in hand. If you're, if you're living fully, if you're present, if you're thinking deeply about things and, and, and reacting in a sensible, intelligent way, you're, you're going to be a better employee in, you know, mm. in the short term, the medium term, and the long term. And that's one of the things that I think we lose sight of in this fast-forward culture is the longer term. We become very short-termist. We're looking completely focused on the next set of quarterly returns, you know, results. Uh, we don't think six months down the line, a year down the line. We're just focused on getting it done now, you know, getting it out the door, getting it out faster. And that quick fix carousel that we live on now is really, is really backfiring. I mean, I think if you look at what happened in the financial crisis in the markets, the, that crisis started in 2007, 2008, a lot of that, I think, came down to the fact that money got too fast. You know, the people who were working in the financial markets did not have the time or the incentive to pull apart these credit default swaps or collateralized debt obligations or these financial products they were selling to work out if they were worth the paper they were written on. It was all about just getting the stuff out, selling it, buying it, selling it as quickly as possible. The whole system was predicated on fast growth, fast debt, fast consumption, and it almost drove us over an economic uh, cliff edge. And you could argue that we're still kind of teetering on the edge of that. That's right. That's right. Um, um, so I, I think yeah. the, the, the bottom line here is that too much speed is – too much of anything is not good. Too much slowness would be bad in its own way. <laughs> <laughs> if we ever get to that point. <laughs> mm, that seems like a very distant prospect. I, I'm not worried about that being a problem. <laughs> Uh, and you also mentioned World Napping Organization. Um, that sounds really interesting. Mm-hmm. Are they having any impact? They are, actually. It's funny. I mean, Spain is a good example because, of course, we all know about the siesta. Right. And, you know, 30 years ago, corporate Spain looked at the siesta and said, uh, no, we don't want that anymore. That, that's a symbol of the old Spain, the lazy Spain. Uh, we're getting rid of that. But now, you know, corporate Spain in some of the fastest moving sectors of the economy are bringing back the siesta. And they're not bringing back the traditional siesta of, 
you know, I don't know, a bottle of red wine and two hours sleep, you know, that was probably gone forever or confined to vacations. But, you know, they're bringing back a leaner, meaner 21st century siesta, you know, maybe one glass of wine or maybe just some water. And then between 20 and 24 minutes of sleep, which is what NASA recommends. And people come back in the afternoon refreshed, recharged, thinking more clearly. And, you know, it, it, it clearly works. You've got big companies all around the world who are in, introducing rooms where people can nap or napping capsules, um, this sort of thing. So it's, it's, it, 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 and, and, of course, we look back through history and some of the most productive, some of the most impressive, some of the most powerful figures around, whether John F. Kennedy, you know, Winston Churchill, were all inveterate nappers. You know, they understood the value of, of slowing down for, you know, a, the right amount of time. The right slowness and the right dosage can actually help you uh, go faster when you come back. And in a way, I think of that as the, the delicious paradox of slowness, is that not only does slowing down to the right speed deliver better results, but sometimes it delivers them faster. And one of the examples of that is, you, you mentioned sleeping, but of course meditation is now very big. I mentioned mindfulness earlier, but it's kind of connected as well. Meditation is very big now in the corporate world with companies, whether it's, you know, I mentioned Google, Microsoft, but there's big banks, you know, Barclays, um, HSBC are encouraging people to take up meditation. And what they find is that, I mean, meditation is in some ways the supreme act of, of slowness because what are you doing when you meditate? You're doing nothing, which runs completely against the cultural grain. You're just still. And, but it has remarkable physical effects, but it also almost seems to supercharge the brain. And some recent research shows that people who meditate regularly begin to rewire their brain. They increase the rate of what's called gyrification, and that means they have more folds there's more folding going on in the cerebral wow. cortex. And what does that do? That means that they can process information faster. So we have this delicious paradox where the people who, who meditate, who slow down to meditate, when it comes time for them to get back into the, the office seat and deal with all the fast stuff going on, they can deal with it better than the people who are stuck in fast forward and never slow down, right? So there's that kind of delicious uh, payoff you get from, from slowing down. Well, now let's look at a different area. Um, now that the slow movement um, is more widespread, um, like you said, what do you see as new business opportunities that companies can leverage to turn the trend into profit? Well, I think that it seems to me at the moment there are the, the future for, for companies, especially in, in the developed world, is, is, in, is in creativity, it's in innovation, it's in breaking through with new, fresh, eureka ideas. It's not about assembling widgets on a factory line faster and faster. I mean, we've already lost that battle to China and, and that part of the world. So the future lies in innovation. And anyone who knows anything about the creative impulse, uh, the, the journey towards innovation and, and discovery, knows that it involves slowing down, that you, 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 you have to have moments when you just let the mind wander, when you let ideas percolate, when you get off the clock, you know, you get into that state where you, you just forget what the clock is doing and you just enter into a state of, of, of discovery and, and letting the mind wander. And, and actually, we know from the research that when we're in a relaxed, mellow state, the brain waves move around in richer, more nuanced patterns, and we get those blue sky, eureka moments of breakthrough thinking. And, and psychologists call that slow thinking. And we all know that from experience. You know, our best ideas seldom bubble to the surface when we're juggling nine emails or racing to meet a deadline with a boss breathing down our neck. You know, they, they come to us when we're soaking in the bath, you know, or doing yoga, yeah, or walking exactly. the dog in the park with our phone switched off. So I, I think that the, the future, you know, the, the, those who in, will inherit the earth will be those who know how to slow down. You, you go through all of human history and you talk or, or investigate anyone who's 
in creative, in the arts, the sciences, they will all have the same experience of understanding that there are times to, to slow down. So I think that for businesses, that's a very important thing to keep in mind, that it's important to, to create the space for people to, to be able to slow down, to have that deeper, richer, more nuanced form of creative slow thinking, but also to build up social relationships, you know, uh, team building, collaboration, working together. That's also going to be crucial. It's already crucial for businesses in, in the 21st century. And of course, you cannot accelerate social relationships. You know, you cannot build trust in a team faster by downloading an app. You can't, you can't buy trust for a, for a, within a department, but you know, off the shelf. You know, you can't bring a bring in a consultant, pay him a half day rate, and create a team spirit. You know, it just doesn't work that way. It takes time for people to get comfortable with each other. Human beings have a natural arc, a natural rhythm they've got to go through to get to know each other, to feel comfortable enough to expose themselves, to challenge each other, to admit to mistakes. All these things are absolutely vital for working efficiently, creatively, and productively in the workplace. It takes time. You've got to invest that time up front. So I think that's one way that businesses can tap into slowness and move ahead and, and, and goose the bottom line. Yeah, I mean, I can't agree with you more. And I really like the quote um, from your book um, by, I think, Dean of the Harvard University. I think it was Harry Lewis who said, empty time is not a vacuum to be filled. It's the thing that enables other things on your mind to be creatively rearranged. And that has everything to do with innovation. And I think sometimes people don't appreciate the value of just doing nothing and letting your brain do the wondering and discovery, which is so important, again, for innovation. Um, and so I think it's kind of uh, going back to exactly what you said. Um, and I also seen a lot of businesses actually um, spawning up, um, supporting um, kind of this need for um, slowing down. For example, here in San Francisco, um, there's a new chain of tea lounge. It's called... Mm-hmm. Um, some more of our, and um, they really try to distinguish themselves from coffee shops where you get Wi-Fi um, access, where people try to get caffeine so they can work, you know, forever for a whole day. <laughs> yeah. um, whereas there, they don't, you know, give you Wi-Fi access, and they really try to let you kind of go through that tea making process so that you will slow down and relax and just absorb the ambience. And I thought that's really interesting how they're growing very fast here, and kind of kind of underscores the need for it that. Does. Yeah, no, not just there; they're growing, they're popping up all over the world, and I think that 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 uh, rivalry in a way or that uh, difference between tea and coffee is a perfect metaphor because coffee is it, we consume it uh, we've turned it into a rocket fuel for our fast forward lifestyles uh, but tea is the opposite tea you don't charge down the street you, you sit you watch you know it's ceremonial and it has a kind of r- a gentle nourishing slowness to it yeah definitely well I think that's a good way to kind of wrap up this segment let's take another break you are listening to Business Reinvention with Nancy Lin for more information about the show go to bizreinvention.com we'll be back after these messages when it comes to business you'll find the experts here Voice America Business Network 
In today's marketplace, your ability to open up the way you think and adapt to change allows your business to stay ahead of curve and perform at a higher level. At Change Agent SF, we can provide you with the tools and coaching to become an effective leader to grow your business. Contact us today at 415-322-9073 or email Nancy Lynn at info at changeagentsf.com for more information. Transform your leadership and business with Change Agent SF. Today's business marketplace is becoming increasingly global thanks to technologies that didn't even exist a few short years ago. Your business might be a startup or you might be one of the global 500. Either way, you're probably looking at customers and competitors in faraway regions. Listen for Global Reach with host Tay Rivez as she brings together experts, ideas, and listeners to help you anywhere in the world. Global Reach is broadcast every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Everybody needs expert advice when they look to develop their personal brand. Join Rochelle McCrary for The Leader and the Muse. Rochelle and her guests will bring you practical tips and tools to help you build your brand in ways that propel you into greater personal and business success. For strategies, stories, and much more, tune in to the Voice America Business Channel every Friday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time for The Leader and the Muse. And get ready to take your brand to the next level. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Business Reinvention with Nancy Lynn. To join in on this week's discussion, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now, back to Business Reinvention. So before the break, we're talking about how slow is the new fast. Um, and slowing down actually helps you think better um, or more clearly. Um, and we also talk about its connection with innovation. Um, so the question is that if working slowly is good for business and innovation, then you would think that European countries, which offer shorter work weeks and more vacation days, would be more productive and innovative than the U.S., but I would think that most people, no offense, <laughs> would agree that this is not the case. Um, what is the missing link, and how can you make sure that slowing down can work to um, your advantage? I, I think you put your finger on something very important there. there there's, when you talk about this slow culture quake, you have to remember, uh, I'm saying at every turn, that, that you want slowness in the right dosage. And that means that you can, there is good slow and bad slow, right? <laughs> And, and in Europe, there's, there's both, uh, especially in Southern Europe, there's a lot of bad slow. You know, there's a lot of slowing down at the wrong moments. There's a lot of sclerotic bureaucracy. There's a lot of, you know, in workplaces which are very hierarchical and there's no room for people to think. They may get long vacations, but when they actually come to the coalface, when they get into the office to work, it's very, the pressure is on. They don't have control over their own time. So it's not as simple as just looking at working hours. I, I think if you look at other countries further north in Europe, you see more, more, of a tip towards good slow over bad slow. I mean, Germany is a good example. They definitely work many fewer hours than we do over here in um, on this side of the Atlantic. But you know, Germany is is a pretty fearsome ex- export machine, creating all kinds of you know innovative new products and, and manufacturing and exporting the the heck out of uh, the rest of the world. So you know, there there are other examples of how that works. I think what often happens in the U.S. is that you you get people who find themselves 
in fast-moving companies, a lot of pressure, but they will still find, if they're the really creative types, they will still, quietly, they may even do it in a clandestine fashion, but they will carve out that space, that, those moments uh, when, they can, when they can slow down, when they can be quiet, when they can let the mind wander, because otherwise it's just not going to happen. If they're constantly connected, they will not be the most uh, productive people, the most innovative people in the company. Uh, and, and I think that a lot of the part of the problem with this culture that puts such a premium on being busy, on being fast, is that we don't allow, we, you know, we, we, we force underground the people who are going slow. Uh, the, I right. mean, what we need to do is hold up examples of companies like Google, which say, you know what, we, we understand that we've got to let people get off the clock sometimes. You know, the, the famous Google 20% rule where they give their engineers, uh, allow them to use one day a week, 20% of their working time without, you know, fixed their own time, effectively to pursue their own ideas, chase their own you know, fantasy projects, play around with stuff, no timetables, no targets, you know, just that kind of free, and some people there refer to it as their kind of slow time. And it sounds like a, a slacker's charter, you know, it sounds like you're just letting these guys hang out and play foosball or pool all day, but actually what happens is that, you know, more than half of Google's most innovative products, whether it's Gmail or, you know, whatever, have come out of that 20% time because it's in those fertile, slow moments, the moments when you, you can forget the clock, you don't have to worry about delivering X, Y, and Z by the end of each day, the, the, the creative juices start flowing. So it's, it, I think we're at that stage now where we need to trumpet those examples from Google. I mean, 3M is another example. Other companies playing around with this idea of giving people more control over their time, which allows them to work more in sync with their own personal metronome, which is another way of saying allowing them to slow down when it's going to help them be creative. We need to get those examples out there so that people feel less afraid and ashamed, and it clears the way in other companies for people yeah. to do the same thing. Yeah, I think you know Google is definitely a great um, example and evidence to show that taking time to slow down will not affect your performance, and like you said, in some ways it will even excel um, your performance in some way. Um, but, but, you know, some people want to slow down, but they're really having a hard time because we're so used to um, the fast pace that it seems to require less effort um, to just keep going, right, and not thinking about it than putting on the brake and dealing with the initial anxiety and, and guilt, like you said, right, when you first try to slow down. So what advice do you have for people who are seriously considering slowing down but really struggles with it? I think the way to tackle that problem, and, and I know that, uh, merry-go-round that you, you feel you want to slow down but you can't I've been on that I know what it's like uh, and I think the, the way to get off it is is not to try and slow down abruptly overnight and just unplug and, and, and go from being a crazy road runner today to being the Dalai Lama tomorrow morning I think it, it, it's, a pro, it's a process right you've got to do it slowly and I think it's about baby steps and, and I have a few tips that I always give to people that just as a way to start getting that tortoise mode going a little bit and, and the first is, is to remember it's just to breathe, you know, breathe more deeply. We, we get into this kind of adrenaline rush, we're running around, we're juggling stuff, we're multitasking, and we breathe so shallowly. And if you just stop for a moment and take three or four deep breaths, you reoxygenate the body, you stabilize the blood pressure, and right away you just start to feel a little more relaxed, a little less itchy to go on to the next thing as fast as possible. And, you know, breathing is free, and it, that, in, just in that moment you can do it. <laughs> you know, you, you can do it anywhere. I mean, obviously you've got to... There are times when you want to avoid heavy breathing in public, obviously. But you know, <laughs> if, you, if you choose your moments right, it can be that can be an instant and free payoff. It just gets you into that lower gear. A second tip that I put out to people is I, I, I think of it as the speed audit. Whereas you're going through the day, just every once in a while, whatever you're doing, whether it's 
working on the computer or mowing the lawn or just driving or eating your dinner, just stop every once in a while and say, am I going too fast? You know, and, and if you're not, carry on. If you are, just take a deep breath and go back to doing whatever it is at a lower speed. And, and it's amazing how often you do catch yourself going faster than you need to because we, we've kind of caught our, got ourselves caught up in this idea that there's never enough time. You know, the, the, the constant wallpaper, the white noise of our culture is always sending the same message. All the advertising commercials are saying, there's not enough time. You need to buy this. You need to do that. You need to do that, that we just kid ourselves so that we go fast when we don't even need to. And often it's enough just to stop and say, you know what? I don't need to be driving at 40 through this school zone. I, or I don't need to be wolfing down my dinner, giving myself indigestion. I'm not on a deadline. I'm at home now. And I think it's just enough just to have that little stop moment. Mm. So that, that's two things. I, and I think a third suggestion I, I throw out is there. Is to is with the gadgets, the technology is to start setting aside time every day when you switch off, when you just unplug, and and start small. You know, if you're one of those people who are completely hooked, start with 15 minutes a day. You know, just and and start to get used to being offline, uh, and and thinking about what you can do when you're not distracted by your Facebook status update or your Twitter feed or whatever, and, and, and start to live more fully in the moment, enjoy things. And people find it can find it a little bit unnerving at first, but you know, it's like, I, in a way, I think of us as speed junkies now. We're, we're so hooked on the rush of speed that to come off it, there, there will be some withdrawal symptoms, you know. Uh, but that, it's better than remaining on it. It's like being a heroin addict. You're better off heroin than on it. Uh, we're better off speed uh, than, than, than hooked on it. But, you know, it, it is a process. It takes time. But I, we can all get there. I mean, I, I speak from experience. I'm, I am a rehabilitated speedaholic, if you like. Hmm. Well, that's really helpful because um, there's definitely argument out there that you know slope movement is not very realistic. Um, for example, um, even you mentioned in your book that some people argue that we need large-scale farming to feed the world, right? And whole food is really too expensive for the working class. Um, and you need to have some level of discretionary income to enjoy things like massage or even an area for gardening, especially here in San Francisco where housing is so expensive. Um, so the question somebody some people raised is that you know is slowing down becoming too much of luxury for the rich and if so how much good can I do well in a way I think it's it's kind of more complicated than it sounds in, in the sense that the rich are often the people who are most time poor you know if you're working <laughs> if you're working in a high a high, a high pressure professional job you know 15 years ago you left the office that was it now that doesn't happen anymore. You leave the office and your Blackberry's mm. in your pocket, your iPhone is vibrating in your shirt pocket. You know, you're constantly tethered to the work mothership. Whereas if you're working, if you're not in a professional job and you're working uh, other hours, you know, you, you usually you, you leave work and that's it, right? You, you, the, you, the, your time then is your own. You may be having to work more than two, you know, two jobs and of course there'll be other pressures. But in some ways you maybe have the advantage that you're not being persecuted and pursued by your bosses 24 hours a day and expected to be online all the time. So I think that there's, in some ways, as, as a person who's further down the socioeconomic scale, may have some advantages there. And certainly when you look at how we use our time, I mean, the most recent figure suggests that the average American is, is still watching, what, four hours of TV a day, and then you add in, I think it's two, three hours online on social media sites. And stuff. You know, a lot of time is going, and, mm. you know, we're still turning to each other at the end of the day and saying, oh... I wish I had more time. And you think, well, it's also about how we use that time, you know. And I think a lot of this comes down to just changing that mindset, that chip in your head and saying, you know, what is important to me? What, what, when I, I'm lying on my deathbed 50 years from now and looking back, what will I remember? What will be meaningful 
to me. And you start to look at it through that lens and you realize that so much of the stuff we do nowadays is just trivia. You know, it's not important. We're putting the urgent before the important. We're putting the trivial before the big and, 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 and the deep. And I think if you, again, stop, slow down and take a look at your life, whatever your income, you can start to work out ways where you can use time more wisely, invest time in the things that allow you to put the brakes on, that give, bring texture, color, and meaning to your life instead of just filling your life up with empty busyness. Uh, obviously, some of the things you put your finger on, uh, you know, boutique foods and so on, those things, those expressions of the slow movement, you know, they're, they're only available to some people, but that's not the only way to, to slow down. I mean, you can, you can go and cook a very simple meal, you know, buy some tomatoes in a supermarket, you know, not necessarily Whole Foods, but a supermarket, some pasta, a bit of garlic. You can make a meal pretty cheaply for five, six people, a family, you know, much more cheaply than you would if you went and fed everybody Domino's. Uh, and, and a healthier meal and a meal that involves the exchange that, you know, someone cooking for someone else, which is a kind of act of love, all of that breaking bread together around the table, all of the benefits that come for children, uh, having a family meal, all the research shows that kids who have a family meal do better at school, they develop a better vocabulary, they eat better. There's so many benefits. And, you know, family meals are free. That's there for everyone. So it's about changing our habits, changing the way we use time, and getting our priorities right. And that applies at every rung of the socioeconomic ladder. What a really good point. Um, like you said, we have more time than we realize. And yeah. it's a matter of really owning that power choice, right? Making decision to really make the most out of the time that we have and um, really appreciate, um, I think, the benefit of slowing down. Yeah, people, we, people, we often talk, do. people often talk about the power of slow. And, and I think the flip side of that is the power of no you know, say mm. no to things. And that, yeah. that, again, is so countercultural. This is a culture that pushes us to do everything, to have it all in that expression that you hear bandied around all the time. You know, the world is this enormous smorgasbord of things to consume and experience and do and, and swallow and, and have. And we want to have it all, right? But the trouble with having it all is, is a recipe for hurrying it all. And I think the, one of the crucial steps towards slowing down is saying no, is, is because so much of the stuff that we put into our planners is just not that important. And if we could just step back and look and say, okay, here are the things that are important. I'm going to give them the time, energy, and attention that they deserve. The rest of it, I'm just going to let it go. And that's another way. Start opening up that time, that space, that oxygen in your life and allow yourself to enjoy the things that really mean something to you. Well rather said. Than just, rather than just ticking boxes. Yep. Okay, let's take another break. You are listening to Business Reinvention with Nancy Lin. Follow me on Twitter at Business Reinvention for more information on business innovation. We'll be back after these messages. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. In today's marketplace, your ability to open up the way you think and adapt to change allows your business to stay ahead of curve and perform at a higher level. At Change Agent SF, we can provide you with the tools and coaching to become an effective leader to grow your business. Contact us today at 415-322-9073 or email Nancy Lind at info at changeagentsf.com for more information. Transform your leadership and business with Change Agent SF. 
Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global. Each week on CIO Talk Radio, IT thought leaders from around the world share their experiences with listeners as they discuss with Sunjog All how they are trimming costs and partnering with business to innovate and help IT become more competitive. This means better care for customers and improves the corporate bottom line. If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CIO Talk Radio with Sunjog All every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel, the bottom line in business talk. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Business Reinvention with Nancy Lynn. To join in on this week's discussion, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now, back to Business Reinvention. Well, Carl, I also noticed that some companies are now incorporating the concept or the theme of slowness into their marketing campaigns. Do we know what kind of response they have received or if they're working? Well, I think it's been very favorable. And, and, and the fact that companies are playing to the, the slow card, I think, underscores just how powerful the slow movement is and that its time has come. So you've got, I mean, Audi, for instance, when it launched its um, a, a, a new sedan in the U.K. a little while ago, it, it had the slogan, the slowest car we've ever built. And you think, huh? <laughs> that what, This car is going to struggle to overtake a you know, horse-drawn carriage or something on the highway? But, of course, they don't mean that. What they mean is that we took, you know, we invested time and attention to make this car as good as it it could be. And when they say the slowest car we've ever built, what they're really saying is the best car we've ever built. And I think that, that nexus, that connection, we started off this interview talking about the, the link that people make automatically and unthinkingly between fast and productive. Right. We're starting to see now that coin being flipped around and people saying, you know what? Slow is good. Slow is mm. better. That kind of thing. That idea of doing things at the right speed. So that's an ex- interesting example from Audi. You've seen it also. Uh, Orange, the phone company, had a campaign a little while ago, and their slogan was, good things happen when your phone is switched off. And you think, huh? <laughs> Again, you think that sounds like commercial suicide from a phone company, but Orange knows that we're going to carry on using our phones and they're going to make a lot of money out of it. But they also know that the whole new conversation is growing up around the gadgets, that there's just that they're intruding into the most private corners of our lives. They're distracting us. We, we, we feel like we're ruled by them rather than that they have become tools. So Orange is trying to become part of that conversation, and it gets people talking, you know, because these are this whole slow movement is something that touches people right across the demographic lines and across the age lines. You know, it's the, it's the iPod generation. It's the, you know, Facebook generation. These are the people who are saying, well, we love these these gadgets and stuff, but they're driving us nuts. Where do we go from here? And to hear companies joining that conversation, I think that's a very powerful lever for them to, to well, on one hand, obviously to sell products and services, but also to, to move things along, to move the debate forward, to be part of it rather than just be sitting on the sidelines. So uh, there, there are umpteen examples. I mean, certainly in the travel industry, I've done a lot of sort of consulting and talking in the travel industry, and, and the, the, the word slow is being used so much in travel uh, brochures now and for branding uh, uh, resorts or tours and so on. You know, to, again, putting this idea of quality before quantity, being in the moment, really connecting with local people, local culture, rather than just spinning through and staying in the same hotel that you stayed in in the other country, you know, Hilton or whatever. Uh, and, and so there's, that's, that, that's really resonating with, with people. And certainly I mentioned earlier, I live in England. There's been a big boom there in, in boutique 
travel agencies using the word slow, you know, slow travel, slow vacation, slow holidays, all that kind of stuff. So it's, it, it, it's, it's, it's answering a need. And it, it, for me, it underlines just how, how this, the time has come. Mm, yeah, it sounds like it's becoming more acceptable and, and becoming more favorable than what it used to be, uh, which was a stigma um, before, like you said. Uh, so I know you've been following this movement for probably over a decade. Um, so what have you learned about what it takes to create a successful movement? Well, the first thing I think I've learned is that you, you in a way, you don't create a movement. You, you, you help it or you, you help it uh, grow. I mean, you, you can't come into a, a moment in history and just artificially create a movement. You have to have, the pieces have to be aligning themselves anyway, socially, culturally, economically. You know, when I first started writing about slow and, and, and came, I, I started putting forward the idea of talking about a slow movement when I first advanced that notion. There was slow food, the slow food movement from Italy, but that was really it. Uh, and, and, and I wasn't even sure if you could call it a movement, and I was kind of playing with this idea. But clearly the, the, the tectonic plates were moving, and that we were arriving in a moment when people were yearning to, to find a different gear, to, to be able to decelerate and slow down. So you have to, you, you have, to have the, the cultural context right. So that, that's the first piece of the puzzle. But then after that, I think it's very important to find the right language to make it approachable to people. And, you know, people have, you know, all the way through the last 150 years, they're there's been a countercultural slow current. You know, if you think of the transcendentalists in the 19th century or the hippies and the, you know, the dropout thing in the 60s, yeah. and that's always been there. Uh, but in some ways, it, society wasn't ready to embrace that fully, I don't think. But at the same time, I think the language maybe wasn't quite right. There's something mm. wonderful about the term slow. It's the English word slow. It's, it's short. It's pithy. It's countercultural. It's sort of fun. It, people see the word and it stops them. And it's also very useful internationally everybody knows what slow means so that word is escape from the anglosphere and you see it in japan and korea and vietnam and all these countries where they they just use the word english word slow as a shorthand for this philosophy of life of doing things as well as possible instead of as fast as possible so it's very important to get the right language that's approachable for people and gives them you know in a way you could have called this move i could have called this movement something like the the right speed movement or the balance movement but that doesn't have the right ring to it does it you call it slow and right away you've you stop people and they say, well, hang on, what, what does he mean slow? I, I can feel that, but is it right? Or what is, you know, and you get the conversation going. So I think language is absolutely crucial for getting people into the right space for, um, for, for starting to join a movement or to feed a movement. And, and then a final thought to toss in is it's very important not to be top down. I, I mean, I, people have, all through all these years, people have said to me, oh, you must put together a, a Ten Commandments for slow or have a manifesto for slow. And, and I think that's the dead hand. For any social movement is when the people at the top suddenly start handing down tablets of stone and saying, you know, I am, you are slower than thou or we're slower than you or you're being excommunicated from slow for not being slow enough. And I've seen a little bit of that within slow food where the politics, it's much more kind of formalized and uh, written up in documents and so on, what constitutes slow food. A lot of internal politics, I prefer, I prefer that more free, freewheeling approach to say, here's a very simple idea, do things at the right speed. You know, sometimes slow, sometimes slow. And just throw that out there and let people pick up where they want to do and, 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 and run with it. So, you know, this slow philosophy might mean something different to an architect in Indonesia from what it means to an architect in San Francisco. But, you know, they can have a conversation and an argument about it. And out of that collision of ideas and cultures, the sparks will fly, the friction will generate some heat, but the movement will keep move, moving forward. And I think that's so crucial is, to, is not to ossify it, not to try and 
preserve it in aspect, but to keep it alive and to keep it simple. Mm, it sounds like a little bit of co-creativity in there as well. Yeah, and to keep it fun as well. I think it's very mm. important to show that you're that if you're taking on the mainstream culture, you've got to show the people in the mainstream culture that you're having more fun than they are. Right? So that's one of the key things of the slow movement. It's it, it's not a kind of disapproving, finger wagging, you know, uh, Victorian. Don't it's the you know it's about having pleasure. It's about enjoying yeah. food. It's about enjoying relationships. It's about enjoying sex. It's about being fully in the moment, enjoying your work, doing things really, really well because you're not rushed because you're not speeding through them. Haste makes waste. And I think that's very important is for it to be fun, to be alive, to be vital, to be human. And people will respond to that. If you get the language right, you get the tone right, you don't lard it down or lard it up with um, you know, bureaucracy and red tape, and the timing is right culturally, I think you put all those four things together and you've got the makings of, of a cultural revolution. Yeah, that's always a great ingredient for success in whatever you do, I believe. So thank you, Carl, for being here with us today. It looks like that's all the time we have. It's been such a pleasure to chat with you today. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me on the show. Thanks. Well, we have to wrap it up now. Thank you for tuning in today. I hope you will have an opportunity to practice slowing down in the next few weeks. Please join me again next week for another great discussion. You can find more information about the show on bizreinvention.com or follow me on Twitter at bizreinvention. I'll talk to you next week. Take care. We hope that you've enjoyed Business Reinvention with Nancy Lynn. Please join us for another edition of our groundbreaking program next Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. In the meantime, follow Nancy on Twitter at BizReinvention to keep up on the innovation trends and information about our next show. Or go to BizReinvention.com for more business insights. That's B-I-Z-Reinvention.com.